Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the July 15th, 2019 Outfest edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. I'm Vosh Bodhi. And I'm Wenzel Jones. Tonight, we celebrate Outfest Los Angeles, the nation's largest LGBTQ film festival, which is getting ready to kick off in Hollywood. Besides the festival programmer with a 411, we chat with writer-director Doug Spearman about his new film, From Zero to I Love You, starring his Noah's Ark co-star, Daryl Stevens. And in a very special What's Your Story, we talk to documentarian Rachel Mason, whose very personal film, Circus of Books, opens the festival on Thursday night. But first, the Outfest Director of Festival Programming, Mike Doherty. Hi, Mike. Hi. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Well, first of all, congratulations on doing Outfest this season. It's your first one, is it not? It is, yes. Yes, I'm brand new. I just started in February. Wow. Yeah. It sounds so daunting, though, because Outfest is such an institution in the gay community, and it's not something you can just slough off. Indeed. It's, a, it's an institution in Los Angeles, and uh, of course, it was it was very humbling to be offered this position, but um, it, it was something that I had been gunning for for a long time. It, I had been festival programming as kind of a passion side project in, in addition to full-time work for many years, and Outfest was the festival that I was hoping one day I would be able to be a part of. And to be in this role in Outfest is pretty incredible. How many festival movies do you look at for everyone that gets in? We have over 240 films in the festival that's comprised of features, episodics, and short films. We had over 1,300 official submissions, plus things that we you know, solicited. So I view a good portion of that. Uh, I mean, we have a, a wonderful programming team, senior programmers and assistant programmers that number in the 60 to 70 people range that have multiple eyes on everything that is submitted. But in the months since February, I've been watching nonstop probably a good two-thirds of anything that was brought in to us, yeah. When you're viewing these hundreds and hundreds of movies. Do you get a sense that this year there's a theme trending or, I mean, how does that work? We get this question a lot and it's hard to boil down the entire festival into one overarching theme. I mean, you see multiple themes emerge in different parts of the programming, but narrowing it onto one is very hard because we are showing stories from filmmakers at different points in their career who have different experiences of life. And we want that wonderful variety in the festival so it's hard to say now all of these films represent one unifying theme but something that was important this year is the 50th anniversary of stonewall um, and we did want to look at kind of our history and our future um, and we found a lot of really interesting connection points between the two um, there are films we have that deal directly with the history of stonewall there are films we have from pre-stonewall one connection that i really love we are playing the restoration of the 1967 documentary, The Queen, which put, you know, Mother Flawless Sabrina and Crystal Labeja into the wider cultural map. And we're world premiering a documentary this year called Peer Kids, which is about the queer and homeless youth at the Christopher Street Pier still living there today. And one of the central figures in that documentary is a young trans woman of color who has named herself Crystal Labeja. Um, and it just, it felt like, my God, this is what we're doing this year is like it just connects past and present and the history that we want to talk about and where we've come from and how far we've come and how far we can still go. Peer Kids was actually really interesting in, in its politics as well because it's about homeless LGBT youth, which yes. is also a really big topic right now. Yes, absolutely. And the director, Elegance Bratton, actually comes from that community. He lived as a homeless youth at Christopher Street for many years of his life, and he spent... I believe, three years with a camera with these kids, just making sure their story was told. And it's such a beautiful, raw, immersive documentary in that in that community. And I, I, I feel so fortunate that we're the world premiere of it. Well, one thing about a festival as large as Outfest is you get exposed to so many worlds that you're not familiar with because you and I, as cisgendered white guys, mm -hmm. you know, we used to be the center of the world. And and then you realize there's so much more going on. What did you find the most interesting, I had no idea that even existed film? That's a great question. I mean, there are many. I mean, there are just so many films that come from communities that none of us in this room have experience with. Uh, we have a film from Spain called Carmen and Lola, which is two women falling in love in the Roma community in Spain. Um, which is already marginalized in that country and then within their own community. Because those are gypsies, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, but yeah. you're not I know you're not supposed to, but... <laughs> yes, yes, but... But uh, with, the, with the movie Roma from last right. year, it's like, now it's yeah, confused. Yeah, you got, yeah, so no, confused. yeah, you do have to make that differentiation. Yeah, but, um, but yeah, that was just... Uh, and the culture of that community is so 
alive and passionate, but also there is the dark side of the conservatism that won't allow them to flourish within that community. So it's a story about how they get out of that. And it was just an entire world that I had never seen. Um, but I mean, there are so many perspectives that you just haven't seen on screen before that come to Outfest. We have a film called Billy and Emma about two teenage girls who fall in love in the Philippines um, within their Catholic school system. We have a film called Brief Story from the Green Planet, which is, it actually won the Teddy Award at the Berlin Film Festival this year, about a trans woman in Argentina who was tasked with bringing her grandmother's extraterrestrial companion back to its mothership. So, I mean, it's a bit of a fantasy, but it's just, it, it also brings you through this world, this uh, this rural Argentinian world where how does a trans woman exist in this community and how does she thrive? And it, it's actually a really uplifting film and something I just had never seen before. So we have, so I could continue talking yep. film by film. You know? yeah, and, you, and eventually you're going to have to stop me. But, <laughs> <laughs> but there, I mean, if you go through our program, you'll mm. see so many, you'll read so many things that, you're going to be like, I don't think I've ever seen that before. I mean, it's it's daunting work, but we have so many passionate people, both on staff and who have just volunteered their time to help us find the best films to put on screen because they care so much about bringing the community to see these works. Do you see Outfest over time, and I'm not talking like five years, ten years, a, a great big expanse of time, evolving into something else? Because it's already become so much larger than when I was first aware of it. I mean, mm -hmm. it used to be quite specific. Mm -hmm. And now it's covering so many bases. Will there come a time when it's so diffuse that you'll have to call it Outfest the... I don't know what you would call it. Well, actually, it's interesting you say that. We have begun the messaging of Outfest shouldn't only signal to you the film festival in the summer because Outfest has so many programs that are under its umbrella. We have Outfest Los Angeles is what we refer to as the film festival in the summer. We also have Outfest Fusion in the spring, which focuses on LGBTQ uh, people of color, those stories. We have Outfest Forward, which is our educational programs, Outset, which is a film school that accepts um, filmmakers from ages 16 to 24, I believe. Um, and gives them like a six-month crash course in filmmaking, and they produce five short films that play the festival in the summer. And then the other section of that is the Screenwriting Lab, which is a judged screenwriting competition uh, where five screenplays are chosen to go through a three-day intensive lab with um, very high-level um, writers and mentors that help these writers hone their craft and make their screenplay as good as it can be. And we'll do live reads of scenes from each of those scripts at the festival in July as well. Um, in July, next week. Jeez. <laughs> and, and then we have the Outfest Legacy Project, which is uh, a program uh, in partnership with the UCLA Film and Television Archive to preserve and restore LGBTQ works of film and media. And that archive has over 40,000 pieces of LGBTQ media in it right now and still going. Every filmmaker in, the, in our festivals in Fusion and in Outfest Los Angeles is asked to give us a copy to store at no cost to them for all time to keep it preserved. And we have more plans for the future to expand. So Outfest really is trying to expand its reach and its influence to keep LGBTQ art alive. Because we live in Los Angeles and it's a very film-oriented community, we're used to film festivals, but if somebody flew in from another part of the country and a friend said, hey, I've got tickets to Outfest and they'd never been to anything like it, what would you want that person to walk away with? Jeez. Um, I would want them to feel like they were part of a community experience, that they didn't just go and watch a movie by themselves and leave the theater and say, hey, that was a pretty good movie. They went and they met some people that were just as excited as them to be there, and they learned about who those people were. They maybe, you know, exchanged some social media um, and, and you know, felt like they had, like, a friendly conversation and, and would go back and would in, encourage other people to go back because it's not just, you know, I went to see a movie. It's I had a, a fun time with my community. Well, and Outfest is very pro-social because I've gone to screenings that came with cocktails. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this year uh, we're at the TCL Chinese Theaters as our headquarters. The DGA is under renovation where we're usually headquartered at. But cocktails are on the menu. Always. Yeah, it's always a, it's always a fun time. There will be receptions after certain screenings and, and parties that come up. 
Well, what are some of the festival highlights and events that you guys are looking forward to? I mean, opening night is always a grand time. It's at the Orpheum Theater. We're um, doing the L.A. premiere of the documentary Circus of Books, which uh, I'm sure many listeners know Circus of Books, the bookstore slash cruising spot slash... Uh... Oh, we were there in the 80s. <laughs> like, oh, I've been. By the way, Rachel's going to be on the show later. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Rachel Mason, who directed Circus of Books, is also the daughter of the owners, Karen and Barry Mason, a heterosexual Married couple, kind of straight-laced, but own a gay bookstore slash pornography shop slash cruising spot for 30 years. Two of them. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Two of them, yes. They're like in West Hollywood, yeah. So it's not only the bullet points of the history of Circus of Books. It's very much a family story and the way that Circus of Books worked its way into Los Angeles queer history and really U.S. queer history. It's a wonderful film. And then there's the after party uh, behind the Orpheum Theater with a lot of fun times to happen. There are a few screenings that have just become real major events that I'm very excited about. We're doing a documentary called Queering the Script, which is about uh, queer female uh, representation on television and the fandom around that and the ways that that very loyal, very vocal fan base has been well-served and not so well-served. And we have a Q&A after that documentary with the director, plus some women that have played major queer female characters on TV. We have Angelica Ross from Pose coming, Amber Benson from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Maria Lewis Ryan, who is the showrunner of the new reboot of The L Word, and Isabella Gomez, who is on One Day at a Time as the queer teen Latinx character. I went to a taping of One Day at a Time. I just want to tell a personal story. And there were so many young queer Latinx women in that audience who were freaking out about Isabella Gomez because seeing themselves reflected on screen like that was so important to them and so amazing for them. They had never seen it before. So I'm so excited that those women are coming. Um, we're also, this is my personal fave. As someone who had Freddy Krueger nightmares in like my entire adolescence, the fact that Robert Englund is coming to Outfest to talk along with Mark Patton, the star of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which is very much the gayest horror movie of all time. We have this documentary called Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, which is about Mark Patton's experience filming that and being a closeted man in Hollywood in the 80s and what it did to his career and his reckoning with the legacy of that and really like an examination of the queer aesthetic of the film and pretty much the entire main cast of that original film is coming, including Robert Englund to that Q&A. So I'm super excited for that one. Yeah. And we have our our third annual trans summit, which is a gathering of the trans community to talk about issues facing them in media and entertainment and in the world. Um, There's going to be a keynote speech from Angelica Ross. Um, And then we're going to look at some great work by trans filmmakers, including Rain Valdez, who has made an episode called Razor Tongue, uh, an episode called King Esther, which is going to be available on BET.com that Angelica Ross produced, and Zachary Drucker and Scott Taylor Schofield and some luminaries from the trans community will be there for panel discussions and a look at a lot of work that is really exciting. So that's just some of the highlights coming. And then we're closing on July 28th at the Ace Hotel with Before You Know It, written and directed by Hannah Pearl Utt, uh, starring Judith Light, Mandy Patinkin, Hannah, and her co-star Jen Tullock. A uh, really fun movie that premiered in Sundance this year. Awesome. And you've got the Kathy Griffith. Yes. And we have, oh, thank <laughs> oh you for God. reminding me. Though. We have four nights at the Ford Theater in Hollywood. We've really leaned into that space as a live performance venue as well as a screening venue. So we have Trixie Mattel from RuPaul's Drag Race performing live before the documentary Trixie Mattel Moving Parts. Yeah, we have Kathy Griffin coming to talk about her new concert film, Kathy Griffin, A Hell of a Story, which talks about the aftermath of the Trump photo that she took, the Trump mask photo. Um, And she's coming for a discussion prior to the film. Uh, We have a documentary called Gay Chorus Deep South that won the Audience Award at Tribeca this year. And the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus is coming to perform after that screening. And we have a documentary called Sid and Judy about the life of Judy Garland through the lens of her third husband, Sid Luft. They are voiced by John Hamm and Jennifer Jason Lee in that movie, and we're going to have a fun time at that screening too. Yeah, four nights under the stars at the Ford. Bring it's a picnic like and have Christmas, fun. but ten times better. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. You can have wine there. And... I know. So, where can people go to find out more about Outfest and to get tickets? If you can find a show that's not sold out. Well, we never use the ugly word "sold out." Oh, we you say, don't. We say on standby. So, oh, okay. Sorry. You know, there's a certain allotment that is sold like in advance and when those are bought up we go to standby and usually if you go to the standby line you can get into the screening it's just you have to hold a certain number for the badge holders and the sponsors and the press and the filmmakers but yeah you can likely get in but if you want to pre-buy your tickets you go to festival.outfest.org 
and everything is on sale there. And there's also there's a page on the website that has all of our in-person box office location and box office by phone. If you're not an internet person, you can call up our box office reps or go to the Hollywood and Highland Center where our box office is functioning now and buy tickets in person. And you can do that all through the festival as well, which is July 18th to 28th. And where in Hollywood Highland is it, though? Because that's kind it's, of a big, um, big Yeah, place. it's on the second level. Um, it's right by those grand stairs that go into oh, the yeah, Dolby yeah. Theater. It's across from the Sweet Candy Store. And it'll be... Highly marked with Outfest signage. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so yeah. much for coming and sharing Outfest with us this year. Thank you so much for having me. And if, if you've never been to Outfest, go, 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 go. July 18th to 28th, uh, headquartered at TCL Theaters in Hollywood, uh, the Hollywood and Highland Complex. And you can go to festival.outfest.org for tickets and all the info you need and our full program guide. Thank you. That's awesome. Rope, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In the 1940s and 50s, depictions of homosexuality were disallowed on the silver screen, and censors were even on the lookout for hidden subtext. In the Alfred Hitchcock film Rope, Farley Granger and John Dahl played homosexual lovers who murder a former prep school classmate on a whim. The homosexual subtext served as the tension underlying the drama. As the film's screenwriter Arthur Lawrence put it, quote, there wasn't a word of dialogue that said the two men were lovers or homosexuals, but there wasn't a scene between them where it wasn't clearly implied. While this theme got by the censors, they did disallow a few phrases in the script, like, my dear boy, calling them homosexual dialogue. Before the filming of Rope, Granger met Lawrence at a party. They ended up living together for four years, but double dated with actresses to appease the studio bosses. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, John DeBoer. Actor-turned-writer-director Doug Spearman is at Outfest this year with his second film, From Zero to I Love You, and he stopped by to speak with us at IMRU. So welcome, Doug. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So this film, what would you say it's about? It's about the search for happiness and being who you're supposed to be. That's the sort of broad theme of it. But the actual plot of the film is about a guy named Jack who has a very easy life in Philadelphia. He's been married for 15 years, has two great kids and a fantastic wife who owns an art gallery. And after a certain amount of time, he can no longer express the fact that he's attracted to men. Something happens and puts him on this journey. And he meets a guy named Pete, who is supposed to be a one-night stand, and it becomes a love affair that changes both their lives. Your film stars Daryl from Noah's Ark, who we all know and love. Daryl Stevens, yeah. Yeah, did this feel like this was an extension of Noah's Ark in any way, shape, or form? No, not at all. Okay. (laughs) No, no, uh, um, only because the characters that Daryl and I and the rest of the guys played in Noah's Ark were so very different from who we are as people. They were true other characters and this movie is based on my life in a lot of ways it's very personal it's very grounded and it takes place in a much more diverse world than Noah's Ark did this takes place in Philadelphia right here right now and then Daryl will eventually move to New York in the movie and Noah's Ark happened in a very specific bubble in a very specific universe and I wanted the bubble that I was playing with to look like my world. Mm-hmm. And Daryl's literally playing me. Why did you feel as though you needed to make this movie about your life in that way? In what way? In the rawness and the realness that you gave us in the film. I mean, like, why? Oh, know. why? Yeah. Because that's what I want to see when I go to the movies. Well, yeah. The first movie that really, really got me in a movie theater where I saw two men kiss and it blew my mind was My Beautiful Laundrette mm-hmm. with Daniel Day-Lewis. And I had seen, I, I saw Making Love before that, and it's really funny because Making Love, which came out in 1982, has a lot to do with my movie, From Zero to I Love You. The plot's very similar. Inspired by. Well, no, it, you know, it was, it's similar. Inspired yeah, by me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason why I wrote it was this. From the time I was a kid, I would find myself in a relationship with older married men. It would happen with teachers professors in college, the dads of kids I went to school with would come after me. And it was, by the time I was 29, it had come to, to be such a thing in my life that I didn't understand it and I wanted it to stop. I decided if I wrote, if I wrote the story, I wrote it originally as a novel called Welcome Sinners. 
And I thought if I wrote it out, maybe I'll understand what those guys are and why they're coming at me and what it is I'm doing. And so I wrote it originally from Jack's perspective, the married guy, to see if I could understand why somebody like that would come after me or or would be attracted to me or want to be in this thing. But I also learned a lot about myself. You know, I'm an old-fashioned kind of movie maker. I like romance, and um, and I feel like there's a lot of magic in my life, and I see the world as a very beautiful place. So I wanted to put that on the screen. Well, as somebody who was catnip to married men when you were young, what do you think it was about yourself? Because i, I got to say it's a problem I never had. What was it about you that made you so appealing to married men, and what is it in married men that made them pursue you? Because this is not a dynamic I'm familiar with in my own life at all. I still haven't quite answered that, except that I was really pretty. (laughs) (laughs) I was really, I was a pretty kid. I was dangerously pretty. And um, it's a burden. It was because it led to some really awful situations. And it led to sexual abuse when I was really little. Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. so I understand that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know if I had, like, come and get it written on my forehead or, more importantly, probably on my butt. I still don't know why. I mean, th- these things ask a lot of questions. You don't always get all the answers. I mean, when a married man would approach you, was it always a variation on my wife doesn't understand me? or No, the constant was the wife was never mentioned. Like, I had no idea these guys were married. I would always find it out. Except with, like... Teachers of mine who I knew were married in. I mean, there were a couple of teachers who had to have conferences with my parents and the guidance counselor. And my journalism professor, when I was in college, the head of the school walked up to my parents at graduation and me as we were taking pictures. And I introduced him to my parents and he said, I, I love your son. And they thought, oh, that's great, because they were used to hearing nice things about me. And he said, no, I'm, I'm in love with your son. And um, I'm like, let's go take a picture over there. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know what it was. I know. As a kid, did you ever see that one day you would grow up and make a big gay movie at a big gay movie festival? Yeah. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Always been in the cards. Do you know the dates and times of your screenings for Outfest? From Zero to I Love You screens twice on July 27th, 7 p.m. at the TLC Chinese on the second floor. Unfortunately, that sold out. And then because we sold out so fast a month out, we have a second screening at Harmony Gold, which is on Sunset Boulevard at 9.30 that same night. Well, hopefully that'll sell out and they'll have to add a third. Oh, wouldn't that be amazing? You know what? Let's manifest. Yeah, let's manifest that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming by and talking You're to welcome. us. welcome. Thank you. Yeah, and best of luck with the film. Thank it's you. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. After the break, What's My Story with Rachel Mason, whose first documentary, Circus of Books, opens the festival. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Judith Light. My experience of Outfest is that it's probably one of the most important things that the gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgendered people in Los Angeles can participate in. There is really something for everyone. What it does is it expands people's horizons about gays and lesbians and what that life is really about. It makes available information for people. It expands people's horizons. Um, It tells us about new filmmakers, the kinds of artists that are coming up and that are creating. And it's not just that they're gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgendered. It really is about another part of life. And to me, that's a very important aspect of it because a lot of people have not been exposed before. And they're not just select films on the side, on the outskirts. They are part of mainstream. And that's how the community is fitting itself into the world and uh, in an artistic way. And I think that's spectacular. And I want to see everything. Queer cinema coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. With the growth of the modern gay rights movement came LGBT film festivals. The first one was organized in 1970 by film historian Vito Russo to raise money for the Gay Activist Alliance. The oldest and largest of these festivals is the San Francisco International Lesbian and Gay Film Festival, which was established in 1977. At first, these films were all male-oriented. That all changed in 1994 with the scrappy lesbian film Go Fish. Today, there are over 150 LGBT film festivals worldwide, with most being annual events. 
They include Memphis's Twinkie Museum, GLBT Film Festival, Calgary's Fairy Tales, and Richmond's own Real Pride Richmond. Nowadays, of course, some gay-themed films appear in local theaters, but seeing them at a gay film festival is a different experience altogether. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Brad Kuttner. Hello, I'm David Morton, director of Edge of 17, and you are listening to a very special Outfest preview on KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. I am are you? I am are you? What is Top Gun? You think it's a story about a bunch of fighter pilots? It is a story about a man's struggle with his own homosexuality. That's serious. That is what Top Gun is about, man. You've got Maverick. All right, he's on the edge. All right, and you've got Iceman and all his crew. Right. They're gay. They are. They represent the gay man. Right. All right, and they're saying, go, go the gay way, go the gay way. He could go both ways. What about Kelly McGillis? Right? Kelly McGillis, she's, she's, she's heterosexuality. She's saying, no, 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 go the normal way. Play by the rules, go the normal way. And they're saying, no, go the gay way. Be the gay way. Go for the gay way. Right. All right, that is what's going on throughout that whole movie. He goes to her house, right? All right, it looks like they're going to have sex. You know, they're just kind of sitting back. He's taking a shower and everything. They don't have sex. He gets on the motorcycle, drives away. Next scene, next scene you see her. She's in the elevator. She is dressed like a guy. She's got the, the cap on. She's got the aviator glasses. She's wearing the same jacket that the Iceman wears. She is, okay, this is how I gotta get this guy. This guy's going towards the gateway. So I gotta bring him back. I gotta bring him back from the gateway. So I'm gonna do that through subterfuge. I'm gonna dress like a man. All right? <laughs> that is how she, she, she approaches it. Right. Okay. Welcome back. I'm Vosh Bodhi. I'm Wenzel Jones, and you're listening to IMRU Radio. We are joined in studio right now by the director of Circus of Books, the film screening at Outfest opening night. So, Rachel Mason, what's your story? I'm the director of the Circus of Books. I'm also the child of the owners of the store, which is what led me to make the film. I'm an artist, musician, and filmmaker. And for those who are not familiar with the phenomenon that was Circus of Books, could you explain to the audience just what those bookstores were. Where to begin? Okay, <laughs> to begin at the beginning. Well, the two Circus of Bookstores were basically landmarks in the LGBTQ community for many, 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 many decades, back when being queer was illegal in the city of Los Angeles and before there was a city of West Hollywood, which was basically incorporated to protect the gay community that was under a threat of police violence, of just violence, period. And the store served as an anchor in both the most important gay communities in Los Angeles, and it was a safe place for people to come, but it was also a place where you could find literature and materials and then eventually DVDs and VHS and watch things that you would not get to see anywhere else. Yeah, I was going to say, because you're making it sound almost like Sisterhood Bookstore in Westwood, which was a very straight-laced, serious, <laughs> um, that catered to the lesbian community. This was more fun. Yeah, we could take the gloves off now, but it was the place for cruising, and the one in West Hollywood, at least, was anchored right across from the Gold Coast Bar, Vaseline Alley in the back. It was just a really, really, really significant place for tons of gay sex. And then Silver Lake was right there at the junction of... Sunset Junction. And um, Silver Lake had a really different kind of vibe, but I think also similarly there was a Silver Lake Vaseline Alley of sorts. And, you know, it was also two very different communities that I think represent the different parts of L.A. Silver Lake was definitely more diverse and West Hollywood was more white. And I think that was just something that, um, you know, absolutely reflected the communities where the stores were. Mm -hmm. In your own words, what would you say that Circus of Books, your film, is really about? I think the unexpected thing that the film is about, it's actually a film about family and family values and religion. As crazy as that sounds, there's sort of like the veneer of gay porn on top of a film that at its heart is about a family that was struggling to come to terms with being part of the heteronormative culture that we live in, which is my parents really just being parents and at the same time having this store that was so centrally located in a pretty hostile environment for so many years within our culture for gay people. And then also things within my own family that led to my mother in particular having to grapple with her own religious views, which were really hard line and were in a lot of ways 
amazingly, not in line with the progressive values of the store. So we come to see a transition with my mom and her awakening, basically, of understanding what it really means to be truly a part of the acceptance of gay, lesbian, trans, the larger LGBTQAI family. When you say, my parents ran the gay porn slash literature store, in a lot of people's mind, they're probably thinking, oh, I bet mom wore lots of eyeliner and caftans and jangling, and dad was probably old. No, they were the definition of mom and pop. Yes, that is what's really funny. I mean, I've had people say, were your parents like two leather daddies? I have a lot of friends that have gay parents that were cool parents that were, you know, not what my parents were. Um, They were just, you know, my dad is a quintessential nerdy guy. And my mom is the ultimate Jewish mother packed into somebody that's also very business savvy, soccer mom type A. So they were the opposite of cool parents to me, or even parents involved in the gay community. So that is what makes it funny. One of the most quintessential mom moments to me in the whole movie is your mother's running around and she's got all these titles. And I forget, is she reading them or something? But she, she turns to the camera and says, I never watch these. You know, she, <laughs> it was very important that you know she doesn't know what's in them. But she's been selling them for years, and that's such a mom thing to do to me. (laughs) Wow, it's interesting to hear you say it's such a mom thing, because I associate it with my mom. It seems like so my mom, because I had friends that really did have cool parents who would have been like, let's go to the drag club. You know, I had friends with really cool parents in L.A. They were actors. They were dancers. They were doing interesting things. And so... For me, it's so annoying and frustrating that my mom would always be like, well, I would never touch this stuff. I have never seen it. You know, it's like, oh, it's just so Victorian, you know, and it's like, mom, you're hustling hardcore gay porn and you've been making it for years. Like, what is the problem? Just accept it. It's cool. It's fine. Everyone's into it. And people who aren't like, seriously, who needs them? It's so funny that you're talking about the line that this film walks. It's so yin and yang. Like, on one side, your mom is all about Hebrew school, getting everyone through their bar and bat mitzvahs. And then on the other side, being a spearhead for First Amendment rights, for access to pornography, for people being able to be who they are in a way that no one else I know has ever done. It's so Mm. amazing to see that line walked and... You being on one side of it, seeing your parents, and then the rest of the world getting a chance to see them in the other way. Wow. It's interesting, yes, to hear that you say it in that way, the line walk. One of the moments for me that really, I think, nailed that line, but kind of blurred it, too, was when my mom goes to the One Archives. Because I know deep in her heart, she gets it. I really do know. There's just, she's been repressed. She's been overladen with the biblical voice of this is what morality is. And I can see that that's what she was raised in this really strict way. And then she was trying to pass on that strict way. But when you go to the one archives and you see this professor, you know, Joseph Hawkins, he's the director and he's this perfect, you know, academic guy. And then it just seemed like my mom was able to let it all go for a second because she was looking at this wall, which wasn't like, quote unquote, obscene pornography. It was just the original pamphlets that were in the one archives, which are one of the very first publications that were mailed out. And it, it still gives me chills when I watch that scene because she makes the point that, can you imagine being a guy in the 1940s or 50s living in Iowa, getting a copy of one of these? I understood at that moment that she got what she did because she was doing that here in L.A. In the six, I mean, she, the store was open in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s when it was still like, oh, my God, could you imagine walking into that store? And I had many different men tell me. I really was pre- predomin- It is predominantly men who appreciated that store. And people were telling me, you know, if I hadn't ever gone into the store, I wouldn't have known, like, in 1973 that I wasn't, just some guy with some like perverse fantasy in my head because there was nothing in the world representing it except a terrible stigma, which was to be labeled a sissy or something awful or, you know, just the idea of being in love with a gay man or seeing like erotic sexual imagery. It was so shocking. And people were telling me like, just tell your parents, thank you. Like they don't even realize what they did. And so that was the kind of revelation for me as someone who grew up in the 90s and all my friends were queer and I didn't actually appreciate that at all. I never understood that that 
there was a time when that was like that. So. Well, now, what was your personal awakening like? Because when you were a little kid, you knew mom and dad ran a bookstore. Did you gradually find out what kind of a bookstore it is, or did you wander in by accident one day? Or, well, I mean, how did you figure out what mom and dad were, were really doing? So I think when I was really young in elementary school, we had to keep the name of the store a secret from our teachers, which I didn't think anything of. You know, parents tell you to do certain things. You just do them. And But I did remember one of my teachers was just like, well, what's the name of this store? Why can't you tell me the name? You know, and I was like, well, I, you know, I'm not supposed to say the name of the store. And the teacher thought that was really weird. And she finally dragged it out of me. And then she just gave me the funniest look when I said, well, it's called Circus of Books. And she just was like, huh. And it was like, Okay, well, you know, I would have thought you would say, like, great. (laughs) Instead, it was just like, huh. And I didn't think anything of it. But then when, of course, I'm an artist and I went to high school and I found my people who were all the queer, awesome, gay. You know, we weren't even thinking of ourselves as gay. We were just, like, outsiders who, like, thumbed our nose at, you know, society and loved anything campy, found John Waters movies on VHS and drag culture, queer culture, all of it, we were, I was immersed in that world. And my friends were like obsessed with Circus of Books. And I thought that was really strange. And I told them that that was my parents' store. And then they thought that was unbelievable. They were like, how is it that your parents own Circus of Books? That is crazy, Rachel. That's like the craziest gay porn store in LA. And what? You know, so it was really shocking to me that my parents were involved in anything cool or countercultural. Well, yeah, because it, it did have, um, not that your parents were literally in the store at all times, but it, it did have a very local grassrootsy mom and pop feel, whereas things like Drake's in West Hollywood, those were very slick stores. Mm. You know, and, and, and Circus of Books was definitely <laughs> a homegrown item, but now, alas, it's gone. Oh. No, yeah. no, I mean Circus of Books. Yeah. And, do you think perhaps the time for that sort of place has passed as well or you know it's it was here for decades it's true and it's kind of interesting i mean i do think there was something now that i think of other stores in general almost all stores try to do a little bit more upkeep than for some reason they just did not care and i i find that 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 was the charm of the store and people loved that about it but it it really does reflect i think my parents personalities in some ways they just you know even my mom drives a car until it is literally falls apart and she has to get a new one it just doesn't you know the the way that they are is very practical like all right if we don't need to repaint why should we repaint (laughs) and the customers are still buying the stuff so that reflects somewhat of their personality that they were just very kind of like uh, modest store owners and weren't, you know, all about branding and didn't even really conceive it. So everything that ended up being the brand of the Circus of Books was very inadvertent. The The slapdash nature of it was just by accident, but it ended up being its kind of signature. I don't remember this being mentioned in the documentary. Were they part of AIDS education in any way? Well, in the 80s, one of the things that I think the film chronicles, the store made available whatever was out there in the landscape of gay literature. So if there was something that was out there and anyone wanted to, you know, have it in the store, my mom, if, if people would buy it and there was a, you know, a demand for it, she would sell it. So I have no doubt that if that, that literature was being presented and produced, it would have been in the store. But what I know from my perspective and and from talking to my parents is that I think the outreach that they did was that whenever they had employees that they knew were sick, and this is like at the height of the like hysteria. And I remember as a kid, you know, there was this fear, oh, you shouldn't get near anybody, you shouldn't touch them. And I just, I don't quite know what it was that my parents recognized because they were around them that, okay, well, we're not getting sick. And we didn't get it, so it's not something that's contagious, so we're going to keep hiring these people. We're not going to be weird about it. And, and they kept all those people employed. And many of them, they paid in cash because they would lose their benefits if they had a job. And I think that was sort of the small, really amazing act of kindness that my mom knew the job meant so much to them and so many people. It was their last job. It was the final thing that they did. And when I think back on it, I mean, I definitely didn't live through that time as an adult, but 
I remember so many different people dying, and these were just, from my kids' perspective, just wonderful, cool, interesting guys. And it would just be, oh, well, he just died, and this person just died, and that person just died. So I remember this sort of many, many, many people all around the store dying, and um, that was just my viewpoint. And only years later did I realize that they were there for those people and that many of those people had been also abandoned by their families at that time. So I think that was what they did in their outreach. I don't know why this just occurred to me. Have you ever thought about turning this into a musical? <laughs> it's so kinky bootish. <laughs> in fact, it's come up quite a few times in the last year. There's many different things that are bubbling up. Part of the amazing thing about Ryan Murphy coming on board with this film at the very end, really, when we were ready to complete it, is that he creates TV series. And that's something that is very much of interest to, to them. And we'll see if that happens. And as crazy as that sounds, it could be fictionalized. <laughs> it's totally perfect. It is totally perfect. When you see the film, and I'm talking to people who are listening, you'll understand completely how it's about the family, it's about the store, it's about the environment and the government. I mean, there's so mm. much. Yeah. I think one of the things, too, is it's about the nuances within queer culture as well. Mm-hmm. But I think I learned I learned it from the film because I, I identify as queer, but within the spectrum that is amorphous and shifting. And I love all of the different letters and the LGBTQ, AIP. You know, I'm excited about all the different things. And I've always been immersed in a world that's countercultural. But when I was interviewing my brother, I realized... He was not like that. He was not a counterculture guy. He was not a freak. He was not someone that wanted to hang out with artists. And he just was a regular normal guy who wanted to fit into mainstream society. And he just happened to be gay. And this is what just led to my revelation even after the film that I presented like this wild aesthetic. And I think that's also what still exists today. You know, I love Drag Race, love every single person on it, but it's not for everybody. And I have to recognize that that is one aspect of gay culture. And there's many people that just want to put their heads down and be a pilot or a secretary or do not want to ever show up wearing eye makeup ever. And that's fine. And so I, I recognize that with my brother and I discussing amongst ourselves his high school experience, I recognized that my like out there flamboyance and fabulous friends were in a weird way also sort of oppressive to him because he was just this little kid trying to be a good, perfect boy. And his only thing was that he was attracted to other guys. First of all, the moments with you and your brother, Mm. it's really emotional. Those were really great moments. Mm. Um, But it's so funny when he just tells you that, you know, your friends were just too gay, you know. <laughs> and at a time when mm. he's sort of coming out, mm. you know, everyone thinks people are accepting because, you know, you never really hear the word faggot unless you are out of the room and then you yeah. don't really hear it. Yeah. So it, did you ever ask him, like, what did he hear people saying about you and your friends that perhaps affected the way that he led his life? Hmm, interesting. I'll ask him that <laughs> now that you mentioned but I haven't, you know, what I think it was with him Oh, and I heard, you know, this was the 90s. The word faggot was alive and well, and I heard it all around me, myself. But because I'm just, as a person, so attracted to people that truly don't care and thumb their nose and are like the punks and are just like, you know what, F you, I don't care. Those are like the people that I go towards, and they could be anyone. I'm, I'm very attracted to rebellious types. My and brother's this- not. So for him, my whole thing was like, Josh, why would you not want to join my freak brigade? You know, like, come to the parade. We are going. And it was like, no, that's not me, Rachel. I am not like that. And I had to recognize, even now, I look at these amazing Instagram, fully realized, like a six-year-old. I love this Instagrammer who's six and is a fully realized drag queen. But there's also just, what about the six-year-old who is shy and introverted, who wants to be normcore and, like, really not at all interested in being flamboyant if they're, you know, the the loudest voices in the queer community tend to be the really, really flamboyant wild ones. So I think, I mean, that is why actually I think people like Ellen DeGeneres and the voices of mainstream Ryan Murphy also just presenting as 
a normal seeming mainstream person that can cross over and communicate with someone on Oprah or whatever and just be like, look, this is what gay is too. You don't have to be a freak show. And um, I embrace the freak show aspect of queer culture. So, What do you want your queer freak flag audience to take away from it? And then what do you want people who are nowhere near that culture to take away from the film? Because I think they'll both see mm. two different films. Yeah, I mean, in a strange way, I think I was making this film for my queer freak flag audience, and I didn't think at all about the mainstream because that has never been a world that I ever expected to penetrate whatsoever. And so <laughs> having... <word. laughs> pun intended. No. But having the experience now of recognizing that the story of the film, it's not just, it's not my story. It's the story of the film. I'm partially in it as a you know, character. It's a very universal story. I mean, the way I feel more and more about gay culture, quote unquote, is that it's human culture. There's not a person on this planet that is not literally related to someone, gay, queer, trans. You don't go far beyond like, okay, immediate family, cousins, uncles, we all are connected to, you know, whether or not you're entirely surrounded by gay people or not. We all are in the world with queer people. This is our world. We're all connected. And so I feel like recognizing the struggle that happened within my family that was a struggle about acceptance, really almost the mother-child role or the religious parent-child role, because it could have been my dad, too, who was religious. But I just feel like the way that we pass on this sort of weighty Judeo-Christian or Islamic, these sort of like ancient biblical texts that had certain things in them that might have related to the time and even at that time might have been wrong. Can we reinterpret things? Can we find a way to just open up to the reality that the people in our world that are wonderful, amazing, beautiful people, we can be embraced and we can also try to reconcile our ancient religious philosophies. And that's, strangely enough, I think all those religious philosophies are what lead to pornography being so a thing. Sex was shamed, and hence we had to go this route. And then now we have this thing where it's called pornography, and then the government, which is deeply tied into religious traditions, also adds shame to it. So I hope that this dismantles in a subtle but also very heartfelt way some of those oppressive forces within religion. Everything you just said. I mean, just everything. I'm an intersex advocate, so I believe that we're all a little intersex. Totally. You know, and how we develop and where we come from. So, uh, you know, acknowledging that and helping that proliferate is really why you're here today. So thank you so much for saying exactly what you just said. Well, I love that idea. Absolutely. That's a great idea. That is so, that's the next step, I think. I think that's like ahead of, that is so great to think of everyone as absolutely in, in between genders. That's why we're on trend, darling. Yes. <laughs> One thing that struck me, and you kind of keep dancing around this, about you saying it's about your parents, it's about your parents. When I watched the film, especially the second time, I thought, you know who's really responsible for all of this? You and your brothers. Because the only reason why your parents did this was because they had kids and they had to support mm, you. <laughs> wow. That is so interesting. Yeah. You know, it's kind of that. Well, that's what I mean. It's a really weird film about family and family values. It it was like, you know, they were really desperate to, you know, when you have kids, it's one thing when you're like trying to find a job. But when you have kids and you're trying, it's like, okay, we will do anything. This is come hell or high water. We're going to figure, okay, gay porn, no problem. (laughs) Bring it. (laughs) Keep it from the kids. (laughs) What made you decide to make the film? A long time ago, 2004, I had taken a a gender studies class, and one of my professors um, basically said, you know, this store is really important. You should just do something to preserve it for the historical record. And I recently found some footage that I'd taken, and my mom was like, get that camera out of my face. I am not going to talk to you. You know, and funny enough, it was so many years later, 2014, when the store in Silver Lake was imminently going to close. And a producer in New York I was talking to, Adam Barron, he said, you know, you just need to start shooting. You don't have a choice. If you're going to document this, you need to go out to L.A. And I was in New York at the time. So I realized it was that. It was just the the stores were going to close. And it was, I felt that sense of loss for my own nostalgic 
love of the stores. I also knew my sense that I am the only person that can really do this because I know how hard my mom will fight anybody who would try. So, Well, and speaking of a sense of loss, it broke my little heart or that stone I call my heart when the <laughs> store is closing and your mom is taking stuff to the dumpster. Aww. I thought, why, why not just put it in the alley? I, I bet somebody would find a home oh for it. <laughs> That's such a good point. No, it w- broke my heart, too, when she made that point. Like, you know, my mom is so, like, pragmatic and harsh in ways, and that's just her personality. But she was like, well, this is where it all wound up, right where it belongs, in the dumpster. And I'm like, Mom, you know, I care about these people. I mean, I literally look at the guys on the cover and I'm like, who are they? Are they alive? Like, I wonder about them. I think about them. And, you know, but that's kind of what it it is about, too, is that I can see that she she's just going to throw it out. But there's also a sense of. I don't know. It's something in that scene, theatricality a little. Like, Mm -hmm. look, Rachel, you see that? This is meaningless. Turn your camera off. You know, I think it was a little (laughs) bit like that. How would you describe your parents now having made this film? You know, now that they are in the world with the thing that is about them, I think they feel a little bit like they're coming out of their own closet. And my mom especially. My dad, you know, as you can see in the film, is about the most happy-go-lucky guy on the planet. If we could all be like my dad, that would solve all of our global problems, I think. He's very happy. So almost nothing can phase him one way or the other. He's taking it all in a with stride, enjoying it. My mom, on the other hand, is very conflicted because this is her awakening into the world that she was trying desperately to hide from. However, she's also an activist. And that's what's really kind of awesome about it is that there have been enough people who've come up to her and said, you know what? If I had had the chance to see my mother make a turnaround like you did, or if I, you know, if I, can I just say thank you because what you did meant something and I wasn't able to have that with my parent. And I think my mom did this bigger thing by being that parent that was really difficult and not cool and came around. And that actually has helped a lot of other people that have seen the film and come up and said thank you to her. So I think she's wrestling with it. And and yet also there's so much praise that she's experiencing that too. I think everybody should try to see this documentary because it's quite something. And see it before it turns into a television series. Exactly. It's going to be the next thing. See the source material. How do people find out more information about the film? If you want to see the film in person, it's at Outfest this Thursday. I will say tickets are almost sold out of the main audience section. But what you can do is if you miss Outfest this Thursday at 8 p.m., there is a Facebook page. It's Circus of Books Documentary. There's also an Instagram Circus of Books if you just look it up. And if you Google Circus of Books Documentary, uh, it comes up. And I'll throw this out there if anyone wants to get in touch. Circus of Books Movie, all one word, Circus of Books Movie at gmail.com. We'll be on Netflix too in the fall. So stay tuned. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing your story. I love KPFK. Thank you for being here, Rachel. <laughs> okay, that's it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and our director of podcast distribution and my co-host, Vash Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you're interested in volunteering with IMRU to help make the magic happen, Email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder, because we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by the station, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org during any hiatus from the -the over-the-air schedule during Fun Drive. Also, catch IMRU Radio on podcast at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Stitcher, Anchor FM, CastBox, Pocket Casts, Overcasts, and everywhere you can find fine podcasts. Good Good night. night.